0: I am Andrew Pudois. I am not a doctor of anything, except when my kids get a cut and I stick a Band-Aid on. So it was uh, mis- miswritten, uh, miscommunicated somehow. An assumption was made, and we failed to fix it. So I apologize. If you want to leave now, uh, that's fine. Um, I would like to get one, but I don't want to have to do all the work necessary for that. <clears throat> This talk is Reaching the Reluctant Writer, and I would assume that you're here either because you, you have some, or you, you expect to have some, or perhaps you are yourself a reluctant writer. Uh, but I do find that many teachers and parents discover writing is one of the harder things to teach in a curriculum. Uh, and this is true whether it's a full-time school or a home school or a part-time uh, university model schools. Almost anywhere you go, people will say, yes, it's hard to teach. I think there are a few reasons as to why that's so. One reason is a lot of people my age and a little bit younger and some a little bit older did not really get good instruction in school. I, I think I can look back and say, I'm not sure I actually learned anything about writing at all in high school. Uh, and I'm not sure I learned anything about writing at all in college. In fact, I'm not sure I learned anything at all till I got out of school. But <clears throat> uh, my, my past wouldn't be a stellar example of good education. So I don't have that then to pass on to my children and students. I've had to, as an adult, you know, study and learn a system. The second reason I think it can be a difficult thing to teach is because there tends to be a wide spectrum of aptitude, isn't there? Uh, you know, on one end, you have what I might call the 18-pager, right? This kid, very often a girl, just loves to write. She started writing stories when she's five years old, and now she's 12, and she'll whip out a spiral notebook, and she'll start writing, and she'll go on and on, page after page, and you read the thing, and it goes on and on, page after page. And and you're not quite sure how to help her make this better but you're very impressed with the aptitude, even though you had nothing to do with it, and you don't want to stifle that aptitude. You'd like to focus it and direct it a little bit. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the child, very often a boy, who would rather scrub all the toilets in the building twice than put an entire paragraph on paper. Why? Because it is so painful, so tedious, so overwhelming to him And so you end up spending a great amount of time trying to help him get through with it. Or you kind of give up and say it'll be easier next year when he's a little older. And in the homeschool, that's particularly dangerous because you can say, well, it'll be a little easier the next year. And then the next year and next year, and pretty soon he's 15, and you think, well, I better do something before our time's completely up. Uh, and so this aptitudinal spectrum makes it hard to teach, particularly if you have more than a few children in your group, which we all do if we have a class or a school. Uh, how to teach lessons that will help this end and also help this end? The second uh, or the third thing I think that makes it difficult is the materials that are available to help you teach. They also kind of come on a spectrum, but with not much in the middle. Uh, on one end, you would find what would probably be called a language arts workbook. This thing usually comes you know in the grade three flavor, the grade four flavor, the grade five flavor, and it has page after page year after year of stuff like join these two sentences with a conjunction, rewrite this as an interrogative, identify the prepositional phrases in this paragraph, and it has a lot of kind of grammar and vernacular and manipulation. But when it comes to composition, not, not not always a lot of help is given. It may say, write a paragraph about your best friend, include three details, and be descriptive. And and when all that grammar, vernacular, and manipulation doesn't hop in and make the well-written paragraph, that's frustrating. It's frustrating to the children themselves, the parents, the teachers. On the other end of the spectrum would be the kind of stuff you find in the um, teacher supply stores. You, you know, I'm sure you've got hundreds of those here in the city. You know the kind I'm talking about. You go in, you wade through the racks of stickers and posters and psychedelically colored pencils and little dinosaur erasers. You finally find the books. They're always in the back, on the wall in the back, right? You go to the section on writing, and you pull one off, and you open it up, and it generally would have a page something like this. Pretend you are a newspaper reporter and report on an event that happened in your home or school recently. Uh, And then it has kind of a place for a headline and a column. It's a faux newspaper-looking page. And the goal of this book, of course, is to help you help the child figure out what to write about. Because that very often is the defining problem, is it not? Uh, If you meet a child who does not like to write, and you have them sitting in front, and you ask them, why do you not like to write? After you get past the, well, it's hard kind of thing, what's actually hard very often their answer is, I don't know what to write. I can't think of anything to write. I have that blank, that blank feeling. And, uh, of course, I have a lot of empathy for children uh, who have this problem because I remember having it in school. I remember very clearly being in fourth, fifth grade. And I had wonderful teachers, but I remember the horror that would come upon me when they would announce that we were going to write stories. You know, I could write reports cuz that was easy you just copy out of the encyclopedia change a few words you know and put a cover on and I could always do that but this kind of you know creative original writing was awful the teacher is very nice Oh, we get to write stories you get to make it up and I would think oh no 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 I can never think of anything you know and I've got once upon a time there was a and inevitably I'm right across the aisle from some 18-pager who's four pages into our next novel there and I remember looking at kids like that and thinking, how can she do that? So I didn't actually enjoy the idea of writing fiction at all um, until I became an adult and I, I learned this system of teaching that allows us to work with content. And what I'm going to show you today is a very simple, easy to do. You could, you could do this Monday morning if you had a group of kids. Probably you're going to have to wait till September, so hopefully we'll walk you through enough of it that you can remember. But uh, it's a very simple idea where we're going to remove that problem initially of I can't think of what to write. I don't know what to write. I have to make, I can't make up something. And we're going to replace that then with uh, a system that is really very classical in its approach, a system based on imitation, where we're going to actually give the children some little source text let them take a few keywords from each sentence, remove the original, and then retell that uh, existing story, be it a fable or a fairy tale or a little bit of information. It can be fiction or nonfiction, it could be uh, information about a person, animal, place, anything like that. And let them rewrite the existing content and then show them ways to make that writing better and how to elaborate on it to a degree. Uh, so uh, we're going to dive right in. Now, this may look to some of you like a new idea because you might not ever have encountered it, particularly in your, in your own education. A lot of what goes on in schools today is really this make-up stuff. Uh, and in a way, when you say to a child, you know, make it up, you, you, you can't write something that someone else thought of. You have to think of it all on your, on your own. In a way, it's a little bit saying, okay, kid, be like God. Because as far as I know, only God produces something from nothing and makes something out of nothing. The rest of us have to make stuff out of what we've got. Right? We're kind of stuck with what we have. And so part of the the process of transforming the reluctant writer into an excited writer is to be sure he's got enough stuff to put things together. Uh, So it's actually not a new idea, what I'm going to show you. It's actually a very, very old idea fact, I know uh, some of the schools uh, seem to be leaning toward the classical approach. Uh, are any of you with schools that are kind of leaning that way? Because I noticed the names Logos, Veritas, these sound very classical. Um, this really is the very first step in the ancient rhetoric training of the progymnasmata which was to retell a fable. The second step was take a long story and make it short. Third step was take a short thing and make it long. Uh, and then you get into encomium, invective, and some of these other uh, ideas, But the very first step in the ancient rhetoric training was retell a fable, retell an existing story. Benjamin Franklin also discovered this method. And I wanted to read to you just a little bit from his autobiography because it's so fascinating. He, um, <clears throat> he uh, starts out here and, and uh, he's talking about when he was trying to learn how to write. He says, when my father happened to find my papers, he took occasion to talk to me about the manner of my writing, observed that although I had the advantage of my antagonist in correct spelling and pointing, which I owed to the printing house, I fell far short in elegance of expression, in method, and in perspicuity, of which he convinced me by several instances. I saw the justice of his remarks and then grew more attentive to the manner in writing and determined to endeavor at improvement. Wouldn't it be nice if all kids had this attitude? Our life would be so much easier. About this time, I met with an an odd volume of The Spectator. It was the third. I had never before seen any of them. I bought it, read it over and over, and was much delighted with it. I thought the writing excellent and wished, if possible, to imitate it. With that view, I took some of the papers and making short hints of the sentiment in each sentence, laid them by a few days, and then without looking at the book, tried to complete the papers again by expressing each hinted sentiment at length and as fully as it had not been expressed before in any suitable words that should come to hand, So Franklin somehow instinctively knew if he was going to improve his writing, he needed something to imitate. He needed a model. He needed something to strive for. And this is so true in anything we do, whether it's uh, sports or music or art writing is is an art, it's a skill, that if we just do what we can do, we're able to keep doing what we can do, but we can't really do more than we can do because we're just doing what we can do. You with me on that? However, if we have a model, something to try and do that is above what we can do on our own, whether it's a coach who's showing us a, a better way to swing the golf club or a music teacher who's showing a more refined way to play something, if we see that and then try to be like it, if we imitate it, that's how we improve our skills, do you see? So Franklin somehow instinctively knew that in order to get better, he needed a system based on imitation. And that's what I want to show you uh, here today. Now, uh, probably the most important thing to remember, and if you want to you know, circle it or write in big letters on this handout I've given you or take notes on a separate sheet... When we start this process, particularly with reluctant writers, and we're going to focus on that because that's the the title of the talk, though you can do this with anyone, reluctant or not. When you have a reluctant writer, you want to be sure that the source text you use is at or preferably below the reading level. You don't want it to be too complex. You don't want it to be too long. You don't want it to have too many unfamiliar words. You don't want it to have unfamiliar ideas that that would be hard to reproduce or or understand. Why? Because you want to have success right off. You want to change the uh, attitude, create the aptitude, create the enthusiasm. So I would uh, encourage you to choose source materials which are at or preferably below the reading level. Uh, I have chosen an Aesop fable here, which I'm quite sure is is at or below (laughs) your reading level. Um, I have found, though, that Aesop's fables are great. To start with, because number one, they are very short, and short is good, especially if you're dealing with a student who doesn't want to be doing it at all, and you can you can do more frequent, shorter assignments, uh, and then children get to be finished more often, which is really the fun part of schoolwork, right? Uh, and you get more teaching opportunity. So more frequent, shorter assignments are often a very good strategy, especially with the. Uh, you know, two or three day a week schedule that a lot of you have. Um, secondly, the Aesop fables come generally in simple language and they're free and readily available. You can go to, by the way, aesopfables.com and you can get 180 some of these things and you can then just print them out in any font size you want. So if you're working with young children, you can put it in nice big, you know, 16, 18 point type. Um, uh, you can change them or edit them if you want to you know, replace an archaic word with a modern one, or if you like the archaic word, you can leave it in. And I have noticed that nobody ever complains about Esau fables. You can use them with seven-year-olds, and you can use them with 17-year-olds. And because they're kind of timeless and universal, nobody ever complains. And very often, there's some kind of moral lesson that you can connect uh, and even tie it into a, a scriptural lesson uh, that, would, that would be a truth However, you're not limited to Aesop fables. Uh, I have used interesting people that you kind of need to know something about anyway. Places. Animals are very attractive to children. In fact, do any of you have a reluctant writer uh, in your class who is a boy? Anybody have specifically boys? I will tell you, to catch the boys, here's the absolute best way. Find the most disgusting, uh, dangerous, dangerous, Repulsive or vile creature that you can find, right? And you let them write a little report on this thing, and they will be very excited. I'll give you a quick example. You can look this up easily. It's called the slime eel. It's also called the hagfish. Either one. It's got two names. This thing is just awful. I mean, first of all, it's so ugly. You wonder, did God really make it? I mean, it's just awful. Look at. And then when it's attacked, it kind of vomits out. It kind of exudes from its skin this great blob of slime, which chemically reacts with the seawater and causes then the enemy of the hagfish to suffocate and die. But the hagfish, in order to get out of its own slime, has to tie itself in a knot. So it kind of ties itself in a knot and it scooches the slime off its tail and, and escapes, but it gets even better. When, when, the, when it eats, it goes and it latches on to some old or sick fish you know, that it can catch up with. And it doesn't have teeth per se. Instead, it kind of latches on like a leech, but it has this little uh, rasp like tongue, and it bores a hole into its enemy, its prey there, and it eats it alive from the inside out. Now, some of you ladies are like, oh. But I tell you, any boy worth his salt would far rather write a little report about the hagfish than, you know, um, Betsy Ross and the flag or something that's supposedly important, right? So if you want to catch the imagination of boys, use something that has some of that boy appeal uh, if you can. But I find, as I said, Esau fables are universally good. Um, you can use scripture. You can use uh, parables. Uh, some of them work perfectly for retelling because a parable is a timeless story, if you will. So you can you know, take some notes and then retell, say, the Good Samaritan or the Talents or... The uh, the uh, Prodigal Son is a great one. Uh, and those are usually very short, too. So something short, something that is uh, interesting or familiar or both. We're going to go ahead and just jump in. I, I would, if I um, had not seen the untimely demise of the overhead projector, uh, have. Uh, I, I'm so sad about that. You know, now we have all this video stuff. And it's half the time no better than a transparency, especially for what I do. So uh, if you would imagine here, I have this uh, overhead projector, and I've projected on here the fox and the goat. And uh, uh, so what I would be doing is have, you know, trying to show it, or I'm, if it was older kids, I might hand out uh, a paper that had it on it. So uh, first, I recommend you take your source text and read it through once just to get a, a flavor for the whole thing. So we'll, we'll do that. Fox and the goat. By an unlucky chance, a fox fell into a deep well from which he could not escape. A goat passed by and asked the fox what he was doing down there. Oh, have you not heard, said the fox, there's going to be a great drought. So I came down here in order to be sure to have water by me. Why don't you come down too? The goat thought this a good idea and jumped down into the well. But the fox immediately sprang onto her back and by putting his foot on her long horns managed to hop up to the edge of the well. Goodbye, friend, said the fox. Remember, be careful of the advice of one who is in trouble. All right, this is a timeless story. In fact, this is, this is the entire modern business world right here, isn't it? You know, Who's trying to dump all these stocks on the market? The people who are sure that they're going down with the stock. So you buy it, please. Anyway, uh, so we read it through. And then if there were any unfamiliar words or concepts, I would be sure to point those out, have a little discussion. What does that word mean? Be sure that everybody's on board with it. Uh, and then we would go ahead and make what we call a key word outline. Now, to do the keyword outline, um, you uh, essentially read each thing. I have to know what time I'm supposed to finish here. 12.30. 1230. Okay, because that's when we have to go to lunch. Okay, that's what I thought. So we're not in a rush. For a minute, I was horrified to think it was 12, and then I was going to rush and have no time for questions, but we're good. Okay, so we're going to make a keyword outline. You've got a little space in there. Uh, usually uh, I recommend you just use a blank piece of paper. Uh, We have it on the handout just for your convenience, but you don't have to have worksheets per se for kids. You just have a source text, blank paper, and um, the uh, title is kind of like a freebie. And then we're going to go through it again sentence by sentence and choose a maximum of three words from each sentence to help us remember the basic idea of each one. So we read again, and it says, uh, by an unlucky chance, a fox fell into a deep well from which he could not escape. All right. What would you say would be the key words, the words that would help you remember that basic event, that basic idea? Okay. Now, we could go with fox. We just wrote fox, so we're probably safe not to forget that. Uh, But the fell would be important. And uh, what I would do, especially with young children or children who really struggle, is go ahead and have them underline on the the paper, or I would do it on the overhead, the keywords you choose. So let's go with fell. We had fell. And then I think someone said well. And we could have one more. We get a maximum of three. Escape. Okay. So we've got fell, well, and escape. And I recommend that when you transfer the keywords into the outline here, you separate them with a comma. This is a tremendously helpful habit to get Early on, because then later it helps prevent you from putting in all sorts of little words like "to" and "the" and "with" and f- "and" and "because" words you don't really want. So, to keep the idea of keywords, put in uh, commas. Uh, you can also use uh, some symbols. The idea here was that he could not escape, right? So, what would be the symbol for not doing something? Yeah, that little "not smoking" thing. So you could go ahead and and do something like that. So a few symbols to help uh, can be very useful. All right, moving on to the next sentence. A goat passed by and asked the fox what he was doing down there. Keywords, what do you like? Okay, we could have goat. We could also, since we put goat here, um, we could just put like a G for goat, and that would be free. Uh, more like a symbol than an actual word. So we'll know the goat did, and then we could have. Okay, he passed, and he asked, What are you doing? Sure, what? All right. So the goat passed, asked, and basically, What the heck are you doing down there in that well? All right. Next sentence. Oh, have you not heard, said the fox, there is going to be a great drought. So I came down here in order to be sure to have water by me. Now that's kind of a long sentence, but we're still going to limit it to three words, which means we have to choose a little more carefully. What do you like? Okay, so there's going to be a drought. And you want with came? And then the water. All right. Now, some of you might be thinking that you want something else. Somebody, oh, we need heard herd. No, oh, down would work better for me. Oh, I wish we had sure. There's really a lot of options. And uh, there's really no one right way to do a sentence. Uh, I have discovered that some people tend to favor, um, you know, verbs. Other people tend to favor nouns. Um, children who don't like writing a lot will sometimes favor prepositions. <laughs> Um, sometimes uh, kids will use more symbols. Basically, I'm very flexible. I want to, as quickly as possible, say, you start choosing the ones that you think will work, um, and not kind of, uh, you know, say you have to choose the, this one to have got it right. So there's no necessarily right or wrong way to do it. But we do want to limit it strictly in the beginning to three. And the reason for that is, of course is if you didn't have a limit, then someone would say, oh, this is a pretty long sentence. Can I please have four? And someone else will say, well, this is as long as that. And if I don't have five, I cannot remember. And someone else would then think, well, five, six, what's the difference? And pretty soon, what would be happening? Yeah, you'd be having people copying huge chunks or whole sentences and the essence of the activity the essence of keywordness in effect would be lost so one of the skills we're teaching here which is a hugely important skill to teach children is the skill of limiting so you only get 3 you have to choose carefully and uh, this has many side benefits as well and later we'll test the outline and be sure those are going to work for us okay let's move on why don't you come down too Now, that's a short one, so we may not even need three words. If we only need two, that would be fine. You come too, or you too? Sure. And if we thought we were going to forget who was talking, we could squeeze in a little F there, and we know the fox is the one doing this talking. So the symbols are, are free. All right, moving on. The goat thought this a good idea and jumped down into the well. All right, good idea and jumped. You you'll find with children they'll sometimes just have one word, you know, and it might be you you they'll think one at a time. You're all very sharp here, trying to think the whole thing through and have all three lined up before you say it. But children will sometimes go, okay, we want that one but they don't necessarily know um, which. Or sometimes it'll happen. Someone will say thought, and someone will also say idea. And then someone will also say, wait a minute. If you think you get an idea, and if you had an idea, you thought, so you don't really need both of them. So they start to see into the language and and the meaning a little better uh, as they work through this skill, developing it. All right. So good, idea, and jumped. And if we forget, we could put a little G. The goat was the one that was kind of not thinking here. All right, moving on. But the fox immediately sprang onto her back, and by putting his foot on her long horns, managed to hop up to the edge of the well. Key words? What do you like? This is a tough sentence because it is so long. See? Yeah, okay, so spring back out. Yeah, now out wasn't in the original, but you could put it in there. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes kids will say, well, that's what happened. They spring out. Could I put out in the outline? Sure, that would work. Um, or someone else might say, well, he didn't quite get out. He just managed to get to the edge. right? Because people will imagine different things when they read this. So uh, that's fine. And um, sometimes the kids will say, well, I don't want to put that. Can I put this? And I'm almost always sure, absolutely. If, if you're smart enough to have an idea the way you want to do it, then it's probably going to work for you. So a lot of different options. Spraying on the back. And then... Uh, on to, over to the edge, and you could probably even use a, a little symbol for out, you know, something like that. Okay, last sentence. Goodbye, friend, said the fox. Remember, be careful of the advice of one who is in trouble. Now, don't say anything. Try this one on your own. Go ahead and you choose three words that you think would help you remember the basic idea here of this sentence and then you can underline them or just write them right into your outline there and go ahead and put that down. We'll see what you get. Did you choose? What is it, Brenda? Uh, Rhonda, what did you go with? Careful, advice, trouble. Careful, advice, trouble. All right, excellent. Anyone choose those exact three? All right, very nice. Someone uh, What did you get, Jared? Goodbye, advice, trouble. All right, that should work. Anyone choose something different than those two? Goodbye, remember, trouble. That should work. What would you get there? Yeah, so there's a lot of combinations. And uh, really, there's no one right way. All of those options, I'm sure, will probably work to help you remember the basic idea there. Do you see it? Um, Now, we've got the outline there. And the next step, a very important step, is for us to test the outline. But we don't want to make it seem like we're testing the child. This is not a test of the student. It's a test of the outline. And the way to test the outline is to attempt to reconstruct these ideas verbally. So with a group of children, uh, I would first lesson, or first few times we did this, probably uh, ask for volunteers and see who could make sentences out of the key words without looking at the original. So we kind of cover up or um, ignore or turn over the original and just look at the outline and see if we can reconstruct the basic ideas of the story uh, looking at the key words. Uh, Once we had kind of done that a few times asking for volunteers, I would probably put the children in pairs and have them talk it through to each other. Uh, and then ultimately I might give a little homework assignment and say, take your outline home and try to retell this story or retell this article to someone who never heard it before so that there's a lot of practice in telling it back. The telling it back is very, very critical. But uh, I won't be asking for volunteers here. I'm just going to pick on you. So we're going to pick on this side of the room and go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, since there's seven sentences, seven people. So Rhonda, could you help us out here and try to make a sentence with uh, Fell, Well, and Escape, something about Fox, Fell, Well, and Escape. Well, you know, you're a natural storyteller. You're an 18-pager, I can tell right off. Um, So I'm not going to really make a hard and fast rule that you can't do two sentences. Uh, generally what we're looking for is a sentence that kind of recreates the, the first one. But if you float into two, I'm not gonna you know stomp all over you. Okay. A fox was walking by and fell into a well which he was too deep for him to escape. Okay. A fox was walking by and fell into a well which was too deep for him to escape from, is what she said. Okay, excellent. Now was that exactly like the original? No. Do I care? No. Did she say it in a complete sentence? Yes. Do I care? Yes. Want to be sure that the students do speak in complete sentences. And I find that native speakers of English catch on this right away. Uh, sometimes if you've got kids for whom English is their second language, that will be a little bit tougher. Um, but it's great for ESL application because it's coming from a complete sentence and then they have to reproduce that and there's similarity. And so it's really a very tight form of modeling the language. All right, Jared, uh, you're next up there with G. Past, ask what? A curious goat wandered by and asked the goat what happened. Excellent, beautiful. A curious goat wandered by and asked the goat what had happened. Now, what I like about that is Jared actually changed the word past into wondered. Is that fine? Yeah, absolutely. There's no rule that says you have to use exactly every word that's here. And oftentimes children will say, oh, this word would, be, would work better for me to tell this. So we're already starting to see some nice variation. Casey, can you help us out with the third one there? Beautiful. The fox replied, Haven't you heard? A drought is coming, so I came to the well to be near water. Beautiful. All right. You get the short one there. You should join me. <laughs> you should join me. Oh, I love this. You guys are natural storytellers. All right. Next one there. Uh, gee, good idea, jumped. Okay. The goat thought that was a good idea, so he jumped down into the well. Uh, by the way, if the child were to say the sentence exactly like it was in the original. Is this a problem? No, not at all. Even if they were to start writing sentences that were exactly the same, that's going to change very quickly because of the other things we're going to introduce into the process. So if they should happen to tell it back exactly the way it was, don't worry. Not a big problem at all. It just means you've got kids with a good memory, and you could probably up the uh, complexity of the material just a little bit. Okay, number six. The fox sprang off of the goat's back and out the, to the edge of the well. Perfect. Very nice. And you'll have to look at your own and give us a sentence from your own keywords. Be careful of advice from someone in trouble. Yes. The fox sneered. <laughs> I don't know why there was pick on foxes. but uh, So very nice. So we did tell back. Now, it didn't happen because, like I said, you're too smart of a group here. But if it had happened that someone had said, I have no clue. I cannot remember why I wrote those words. Would it be okay to go back and read the original again and refresh your memory and then continue on the process? Absolutely. It's very important that when you do this with children, your attitude is not that we're testing the memory of kids. That's not at all the goal here. The goal is that The child learns how to test the outline, right? And if it doesn't work, then you'd fix it. If there's a a few key words, I have no clue why I wrote that. Well, you go reread it, and you might say, you know what? I should have chosen different words. In which case, then you can cross one out and put a different one. (laughs) Although, I had one little boy in a class once, and I watched him. He had uh, written three words and crossed out All three and put three more words and at first I thought oh he's being very careful and thoughtful about the words he's using but then I realized he could still read the crossed out ones and he had got six and then was just crossing out the first three kind of stomping all over my system there but you know I couldn't fault him he'd followed the letter of the law there Uh, but the idea would be if you need to change the outline so that you can remember and understand it better then that's okay not a test of children. And there's lots of ways to do it. You can do it in a group as we just did. Uh, Although with children, I would generally ask for volunteers uh, and and let the kids who are most confident do it first. And and generally you do that a bit and then pretty soon everybody wants to. It's not hard to get participation here. Second thing would be to put them in pairs and say, okay, you tell it to him, now you tell it to her. Listen and uh, and, uh, go through. You can also use this as part of a public speaking Program And I know uh, you are all fans of Teresa Moon and her work with Communicators for Christ. I'm I'm very, very supportive of everything she does. And uh, one of the things I feel that we most need to do when we have uh, schools, particularly that are uh, part-time schools, is give children opportunity for public speaking. Public speaking is one of those things that if you develop an aptitude at a young age, it will stick with you for your whole life. And if you don't develop the aptitude at a young age, you can grow up and be very afraid of standing in front of people, standing in front of peers and having to do that. So I think we all have a responsibility in terms of raising Christian leaders to create the aptitude at a young age. And the keyword outlines are absolutely perfect for this because uh, you don't want kids to stand up and read a speech, right? Or worse, the oral report. Remember that thing in third grade? My report is on Japan. It is a country in Asia. (laughs) Oh, when is this going to be over? Uh, We also don't necessarily have time for children to go memorize whole speeches. Uh, So the keyword outline is really perfect in that you can train a child to speak to people and not to paper. And uh, so what I would recommend is that every, probably every day, you have one or two children do a public speaking. Uh, you need some kind of lectern uh, a music stand of adjustable height is usually the best, but it 's nice to, uh, for them to keep their hands solid you know so you you put the thing on there, make sure it 's a nice big print so they can see it easily and step one in our system just hold the darn thing so that your hands aren't doing other things that you know <laughs> could be really worse so you hold the hold the stand and then. You make one simple rule, very powerful rule. You can look at the paper and think of what you're going to say, but you may not talk while your eyes are on the paper. You have to then look up and say what you thought. Oh, this is powerful. This is th- you, you can sit there and watch children do this and almost see them just forcing neurons to make connections through sheer act of will. First time you try it, it might look a little like this. (laughs) A fox fell into a well and could not escape. (laughs) A goat... passed by and said, what are you doing down there? The fox said, there's going to be a horrible drought, and you'd better get down here near the water too. You see? So you look, think, and look up and speak. And I tell you, if you train this in young children, this is an aptitude that will last and serve them so well. I uh, was involved in coaching a debate team for uh, several years in California. And uh, that is one of the hardest things to do, is to get teenagers to stop reading from the paper. And if you can train them to glance at their note and then talk to the people, it's so much more effective. So I would encourage you to uh, start a public speaking program uh, in any capacity that would include both uh, memorized speeches, uh, poetic and scripture recitation, but also this telling that content from keyword outlines. And what's interesting is children can listen to the same fable four or five or ten times. They don't have a problem hearing the same story again. Of course, if you're a parent, you've already noticed this, that you can read Ping and the beautiful Yangtze River easily 100 times to a child, and they don't have a problem with this. So y- children are okay. If ten kids are telling the fox and the goat story, they'll all be very interested and then what will happen is that one kid will kind of get an idea and do something really interesting, right? Uh, and then other kids will start to get ideas. Oh, I could say something more interesting too. And that's going to carry over very directly into their writing as well. So don't skip the telling it through both uh, as a group, in partners, formally, as much as you can. Uh, and even if you work, how many of you work with teenagers? It's even good for teenagers to do this. Uh, you will notice that many teenagers would attempt to tell it back something like this. Um, There was, like, this uh, fox, you know, and he was, like, really clumsy or something because he, like, fell into this well and stuff, and then he couldn't get out. And then this goat, like, passed by, and he was like, you know, what the heck are you doing down there? And then the fox was, like, such a liar and goes, well, there's going to be a drought. Okay, so... A formal talking program can be very helpful, even for teenagers, uh, especially today. So uh, I would encourage it at, at all areas. And as I said, you want to be sure the content is at or below the reading level, but of interest to the, re- to the students who are doing it. And uh, you probably already saw that you can incorporate uh, content from, say, history or geography, uh, biography, uh, Bible. Anything that you're reading and talking about can also be material that you use. Uh, and uh, sometimes people go out and they look for something and they find this really good source text and say, oh, it's too long. Just do the first five sentences, the first ten sentences. Nobody says you have to do the whole thing. So you can just take a little chunk of source text and apply it right away. Do you think you can can find stuff like that? And we've got our little booth and we sell stuff to help you if you're interested. But Uh, The basic idea is the very one that that Franklin thought of a long time ago. Um, Now, a couple of things to keep in mind as we start to have children writing. And one of those that I think is very important, especially if we're working with young children or children who struggle, and that is that English composition, spelling, and handwriting are very different neurological functions. They're very different brain activities. Those things happen in different parts of the brain, and it can take years before those are well integrated. Uh, Now, I'm obviously not saying don't teach spelling and handwriting, but what I would like to suggest is this, that if what you want is English composition, which by definition is putting words into sentences, and sentences into a logical sequence, right? Words into sentences that make sense, sentences into the logical sequence. If what you want is that, don't pester children about trying to spell everything neatly and, and or spell everything correctly and write neatly at the same time. Because what happened is it kind of splits their brain and they do none of it well. Um, handwriting has nothing at all to do with language. It's, it shouldn't be called a language art. It's, it's a completely different thing. What is it, handwriting in its simplest form? Yeah, it's, it's a mechanical imitation of patterns, of visual patterns. It's, it's art. You see a pattern. You try to reproduce the pattern. You try to do that with enough repetition that you can remove the original and produce it from memory. You try to do that with enough repetition that you can do it automatically without having to think about it. But, but that can take time, can it not? Especially in young children or children who struggle with, you know, issues like dyslexia, dysgraphia, stuff like that, is particularly difficult. So, I want to always let the children know I don't really care what it looks like here. Um, also, I'm sure you've had this experience: um, children had a word on the spelling test last week, and now they're writing a story and they misspell the very word that they could spell a week ago. Does it mean they forgot how to spell it? Probably not. They probably could still spell it on demand, but what happens is they're over here in the language part of their brain. They're making sentences. They're in their imagination. They're trying to translate images into words and and be sure that they're syntactically correct against their language database. And and they want to write this word, and to do so they would have to hop out of the language part of their brain, go all the way over to the spelling part of their brain, find the word, pick it up, and carry it all the way back over the language part of the way. And by the time they had done that, they forgot what they wanted to write. So I'm always wanting to let them know that uh, I'm not going to worry if there's you know, a misspelled word on the first draft here because I want them to be completely into how it sounds, not what it looks like. And I think I gave you on the handout, if you flip over down at the bottom of the page, it's kind of small, but I have a nice big uh, poster that I put up uh, on the wall or something similar to this. And I say, this is what I want your paper to look like here. Uh, and I have a rule, which I recommend you follow. It is a very powerful, very effective rule. And that is, no erasing allowed. Of course, I had one little girl. She said, how do you erase aloud? <laughs> I said, it's easy. You just imitate a boy. Because they do it like this. <laughs> sound effects for everything. But um, no erasing allowed. This is a tremendously freeing thing. Uh, However, if you're going to have this rule, then you have to be sure the children skip lines. So you have to have this discipline of double spacing. And um, uh, I recommend that you go even one step further and do what I do, which is I encourage, if not require, students to use Pen, not pencil. Pen is very much superior to pencil in English composition for many reasons. Number one, you can't erase it, so the temptation is removed. Unless you have that ultimate heretical device, the erasable pen. But a pen does not is not generally erasable, and so there's no there's no desire or temptation to do so. The second reason is that uh, pencils, for many children, actually are Tactilely, neurologically, and emotionally disturbing. I can prove this. Have you ever noticed that children have a compelling need to constantly sharpen their pencil? Kids will will constantly get up and go. And you think it's because they want to get up of their chair and move around? A it's not. Give them a pen. They'll sit there for an hour. The reason is this: pencils are constantly changing, so they start out with one level of friction one tactile kinesthetic experience. Two minutes later, it's duller, and it's harder to use, and it's a different kinesthetic experience. Two minutes later, it's duller than that, and it's changed again. And two minutes after that, it's so different from what they started. They're compelled to sharpen it because they crave above all what? Consistency. Children crave consistency. And pencils are unnerving because they are constantly changing. So pens don't change. They're very consistent, so they're more uh, reassuring to a child. Other thing, do any of you have kids who have claimed tired hand disease? Tired hand disease is a neurological issue. Um, Probably 8 out of 10 times, it is connected with vision. Uh, Occasionally it's connected with poor respiration, and what happens there is kids get into the language part of their brain, and so they start thinking like they're talking, and because they're not talking, but they're writing, they start writing like they talk, which would be to take a breath, say a whole sentence, and then breathe again. So a lot of kids, if you watch them, they'll do this. And all tension in the human body is connected with poor respiration. Uh, So when you get kids who don't breathe well, sometimes that creates tired hand disease. But most of the time, I'd say eight out of ten times, tired hand disease is the result of visual immaturity. Kids who are mildly dyslexic, dysgraphic—they don't, you know—they're still flipping their letters around when they're eight years old. They're very common. In fact, you might even say there's a majority of eight-year-old boys. I I wouldn't call them mildly dyslexic. I just call them not cooked yet. They're—they're just—they have immature visual pathways. And here's what happens with a person who doesn't see things well: they want to see greater contrast. They want to see clearer images. And a pencil is not dark, right? It's gray. And if you want to make it darker, what do you have to do? You have to push harder, which not only causes tired hand disease, it causes you to break the tip of the darn pencil, and then you've got to go sharpen it again. So if you're completely married to the idea of kids using pencils, then I would recommend that you use, especially for some kids, thicker lead mechanical pencils, because they'll have the consistency and the darkness that they crave. Um, but then you've got to deal with the lead clicking and falling all over the place. Because I'm saying just switch to pen. And uh, if, if I ever get one of these little girls, you can spot them a mile away. She doesn't want to recopy this thing. So she's got this strategy of getting it perfect the first time. So she'll actually erase two words that there and squeeze in the three that should be there. If I ever see a student like this, I just come over with my pen. And I write on her paper and cross out and put in a new word, and I make a big mess so she knows it's hopeless. <laughs> there is no such thing as a first and only copy in my world, in my classes, in my home. It just doesn't exist. And, and you know that thing we learned in high school, a lot of people learned rough draft in pencil, final in pen. Did anyone learn that? It should be exactly the opposite. Rough draft in pen, so you don't waste any time erasing, final in pencil, so if you make a transcription error, a handwriting error, then you can erase it and still have it look pretty at the end. Uh, a lot of people also will ask at this point about what about keyboard, you know, what about writing at the keyboard. Um, I would suggest a few things. Number one, it's very helpful if you type the second draft. So if you've got your messed up, no erasing, and then you go type that thing It's very helpful because not only is it going to look good, if you made a a copying error, you could very simply produce a third or a fourth version. You can get several additional editing experiences if you've typed the second and then you can produce a third and fourth. It's not so painful. Whereas to re handwrite that same story or article a third time, it's just nobody would do it. It's just not worth it. However, I am not a big fan of people composing at the keyboard for a few reasons. And, and I would recommend that you try to get kids writing on paper and keep them doing this as long as you can, You know, hopefully till 13, 14. At some point, you just lose the battle, uh, and then they, they've accomplished the skill. But there are a few reasons. Number one reason is I actually think, I, I, I'm almost certain of this now, that people think more carefully when they write on paper than when they type. Because there's kind of an illusion when you're typing that, oh, you can just change and fix anything. So there's not as much concern about the construction of a sentence as there is when you're writing it on paper. You're investing more of yourself. It takes more effort. And you can just imagine you know, one of those authors in the 1800s, say Mark Twain. He, he basically probably would think of a sentence, rehearse it in his brain change words, adjust it. He would edit the whole thing in his mind before committing it to paper. And even then, he would make changes on the paper. But the care with which language was used uh, on paper, I think, was much greater than what we, we see today. So, and I notice this in myself, too. If I handwrite an essay, I think a lot more carefully about the whole sentence. Whereas if you just start typing, you can start typing the first part of the sentence before you've got any clue what the last part's going to be. And so there's less of an intellectual discipline. Um, There is a saying, and I don't know who to attribute it to, so if you know, tell me. I'm not even sure I agree with it, but I like the premise of it, is that Hemingway wrote better than Grisham for lack of a computer. Twain wrote better than Hemingway for lack of a typewriter. Homer wrote better than Twain for lack of paper. That essentially, you know, technology will cause the atrophication of skills. I mean, we've seen that. Uh, again and again and again. So keeping kids on paper for um, quality reasons is one thing. There's a practical reason, too. If you start typing everything when you're 10 or 11 years old and you only type everything, you will be at a distinct disadvantage when you go in to take either the ACT, the SAT, the GED, the TOEFL, or the GRE exam. Not only will you have to write an essay on paper, it's timed, and unless you're going to go claim dyslexia, you know, If you haven't written much on paper, you just don't have the stamina to put a lot of words on paper. You can't get as high of a score as someone who can. Also, if you do get into the college or university, there are more and more cases now where we're seeing uh, the return of the Blue Book exam, the in-class written essay. In fact, many professors are now even banning laptops from classes because I tell you from personal experience, there is nothing more depressing than teaching a group of people who are all staring at computer screens. And of course, research proves half the time they're not taking notes at all. They're playing solitaire or downloading who knows what. So, a lot of professors I know have banned laptops, say, you take notes on paper in my class. Uh, so, that we're that, kind of seeing a swing toward that. Now, things may change, and 10 years from now, everybody may never type anything which is going to talk to your computers, which will find a further degradation of the quality of language. But for now, I would encourage you to, and encourage you to encourage your parents to try and help kids gain the skill of writing on paper and maintain that as long as possible. Uh, Okay, let's just stop for a second and see if there's any questions about anything I've said so far before we go into the next little part. Yes? Okay, good question. Her question, I'll repeat for the recording, was would you encourage kids to try and make it as short as possible or to elaborate or to be as close to the original or to try and be different? Does that summarize? Um, the answer is no, I wouldn't encourage anything in particular. I would pretty much give the kids freedom to do it however they wanted to. Uh, and, and like we found out here with Rhonda, she, she's a storyteller. I mean, she wanted to begin the elaboration process right off Whereas there would be some uh, kids who would, you know, they'd say, a fox fell into a well, could not escape. A goat passed by and asked, what are you doing? I mean, they would tell it in as few words as possible. And either one is okay with me. I'm not really worried. Um, That's kind of a personality or an aptitude thing, right? So I don't want to to try to change the child. I want to try and develop their skills. Um, But the problem of plagiarism will go away very quickly if that's what you're thinking in the back of your mind uh-oh they're going to write this thing exactly like the original because they have such a good memory we're going to get rid of that right away so you won't won't that won't be a long-term problem good another question yes when you actually teach the process to the children do you should I walk once through for us or do you break it up into steps and then today we're going to do you know retell the story verbally or you know uh-huh, uh-huh. Good. Her question was, when you teach this to children, do you do it all at once like we did in this last hour, or do you break it into steps? And the answer would be either one, depending on your situation. I personally do not like teaching any classes under about 90 minutes to two hours, um, because I want to have enough time to tell some jokes and talk to kids. But in your situation... And I know some schools and co-op situations are so tightly scheduled, you've got 40 minutes to do grammar, composition, and spelling, and that's it, three days a week or whatever. In that case, you might just have got this far, and you say, okay, time's up, we're going to pick this up on Thursday you know, and do this next thing, and then next week we tell it back, and, and that, that used all our time, and then the next class we're going to write a few sentences and then maybe you finish it home for homework or something like that. So you could take any hour and break it into six ten-minute lessons if you had to. I don't personally like that approach, um, but it, it certainly would work. And uh, given the logistics of your of your situation, but if if people ask me to come and do demonstration class for the school, I say ninety minutes minimum. I won't do it less than that because otherwise, uh, here's what happens. And this is, I, I have one network of, of homeschool co-op groups. And this is the big problem. The classes are so short and they're trying to accomplish so much that the teachers will teach the lesson and then say, okay, go home and do this. Half the kids don't, they didn't get it. So what I'm always wanting to do in a demonstration situation is teach the lesson and have enough time to say, okay, now everybody pull out your fresh piece of paper and start writing the story and give them 15, 20, 30 minutes to actually be writing the sentences, run around and help, discover the kids who didn't understand what, what was going on so I can give the individualized attention necessary because otherwise they might come back next week and completely have misunderstood or completely failed or the mom tried to help them and she wasn't there so she didn't understand what was going on. You see? So having enough time to do it well and do it in the class rather than just here's your homework. That's really important to me, especially in the beginning stage. Good. Yes. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Well, yes, I could. I could. Her question was, I have one student who would probably do very well with the keyword outline because he's hyperactive a bit. Um, But getting him to write the sentences would be challenging. Is that correct? Yeah. So here's what I've noticed about boys in particular, but generally kids who don't like writing. Their brain is working so much faster than their hand. Their mouth can barely keep up with their brain, but, but that hand to keep up with the brain is virtually impossible. So they may be able to think of a sentence, but when they go to write that thing, they can't remember the first thing because they were so fast to get to the end. Are you with me? So it's, it's an immaturity, and they usually will grow out of it. The question is how to help them grow out of it faster, help them develop the skills. So here's a few strategies. If you're working with the parent here, uh, or you've got one-on-one time with the student, uh, or if you've got a mixed-age classroom, you could take an older student and put them with it. It doesn't work too well when you have kids the same grade or age, but if you've got an older student, and and you basically could take turns and say okay you tell me the first sentence and i'll write it down for you now i'll dictate the next sentence to you and you write it down and then you can dictate it slowly you can say it to them slower than they're going to hear it in their head and they they can and you can repeat it so that they can hear it and and that's a nice, uh, very informal way of doing some what used to be called dictation, traditional dictation, which is very rare in schools now. Uh, so then, And then the next sentence, okay, you tell me and I'll write it for you. And the next sentence, I'll dictate and you write it. So then the child would be writing every other sentence. What you might discover is that he's dictating pretty long sentences to you, and you're dictating fairly short ones to him. But if you were to start this process and keep with it for a few weeks or months, I guarantee... At some point, this kid would say, okay, I got it. Leave me alone now. I-, I can do this. I don't need you now. Because their goal really is to become independent of you. But they're, they don't have the capacity to take that huge leap initially. So this would be one way to have a weaning step. Um, if you have children who are just profoundly you know, dyslexic and dysgraphic, you could train the mom to be the secretary for a while. Um, I have my son who is 13, is by far the most dyslexic kid I have ever met in my life. I mean, he couldn't read anything at 10 years old. It's not like I don't know how to teach a kid to read. You know, all my other children read. but I mean, he just couldn't. He could read words like cat and mom, but you give him bad, he's like bab, bab, dab, dad. I don't know. I mean, 10 years old. Just completely fry his little brain. He didn't read a book till he was 12, and now he reads all the time. So... You know, the fact is, if you do the right things and you have enough patience, I know any number of men with advanced degrees, PhDs, who didn't read until they were teenagers. But if you hold them back uh, in the writing area, then that's tough. So for for him, and I'm just saying this because it's possible that you have in your class children who meet this profile, um, copy work is tremendously important. Even if they can't read every word they're copying, just the discipline of forcing the eye and the hand to do what it's got to do. So he did 15 to 20 minutes of copy work every day for about 16 months. And when the Davis Dyslexia Foundation person came and started working with him, and I showed her what she's done, she said, that's brilliant. No, very few parents I've ever met would have a child do this, but this is exactly what he's needed for a long time. So uh, the copy work, and then that builds the stamina. Right? Part of the reason a child doesn't want to put words into sentences is because he just gets so exhausted so quickly. It's like running. You know, If you want me to go run a 10K race, I'm not going to be able to do it tomorrow. Right? I'd have to go run half a mile, recover, then run three quarters of a mile, recover, then I'd have to build up over time. I'm sure I could, if I spent a year, build up and run a 10K race again. But two things. I have to do it carefully, or I'm going to give up. And number two, I have to want to, which I don't. Right? So so there's that motivation issue. And we're gonna talk about that tomorrow in the boys in the teaching boys talk, that whole art and science of motivation. Um, and, and then in a rare case, you might go so far as to go ahead and get some of that software that will allow a child to dictate to a computer. My son, we're on vacation, we're staying in this little cabin in the mountains, it's morning, we're getting up, it's beautiful, I'm drinking coffee, and he comes in and he goes, Oh, daddy. I just had the most wonderful dream. I'm like, well, oh, what was it, son? He goes, I dreamed there was this little robot machine, and you could tell it what you wanted, and it would write it all down for you. It would be so good if I could have that kind of thing. I said, well, actually, <laughs> there are some software programs. He goes, are you serious? Really? How much does it cost? I have five hundred and ninety-five dollars in the bank. Could I possibly buy buy it for that? And, and I said, Well, possibly. I, I think about it. He goes. You don't know what a blessing it would be to dyslexics like me. <laughs> I, I mean, how could I say no? And I am a firm believer that technology will atrophy the, atrophy a skill. However, in that type of case. The side effects were incredible. He had to train the thing to his voice, which means he had to read this thing a hundred times and get it just perfect. You also have to tell the thing to put in periods and commas and all that. So really, in a way, it was it was making the process of writing something that was not overwhelmingly impossible. And it was bringing attentiveness to detail. I'll tell you one more story, because his case study is just so fascinating. I've got to write a book about this kid, but I've got to wait till he's a little older first. Um, I um, I noticed this amazing thing going on in his brain after copy work. I would, this was after about a year of doing copy work every you know four or five days a week, um, 15, 20 minutes a day. okay? And we, he'd copied the Osborn Book of Knights and Medieval Weaponry. He copied most of the book of Revelation. you know, I was kind of letting him choose what he wanted. So anyway, one day, and then he started to choose his own stuff. So one day I come home, and I, I'm not checking on him every day. I'm believing that he's doing what he said he's done on his, his list. But he, uh, he, he had marked off copywork. And I said, oh, could I take a look at your copywork? And so he brings it over to me. And I start reading it. And I'm thinking, whoa, this is really strange. It, it wasn't wrong or bad. It was just very odd really odd word usage, just, and I thought, where did this come from? I mean, what book in our house would have had this story in it? So I said, is this your copy work? He goes, yeah. And he goes, so you copied this from something? He goes, yeah. I I said, well, could you tell me exactly what you copied it from? And he looks at me, half guilty, but half excited. And he goes, well, I copied it from my brain. And I said, oh, so you, you made up this story. He goes, well, yeah, I mean, but it was in my brain and then I copied it. Isn't that amazing? So he had made this transference from that. Um, so, you know, I would just encourage any mom who's got a kid who's struggling that way follow basic principles, stick with it, dictate back and forth with the keyword outline, and, and you can move that direction and you can get success. Good, all right. That was a longer answer than you were expecting. Yes, sir, Aaron. Yes, Aaron's question is, um, would I add to the list of why more and more kids don't like writing a general decline in handwriting? Absolutely. Uh, and you'll find teenagers who come to my SAT seminar, and you can tell they have no clue how to do cursive. They've never done it. They don't write much. They, you know, they're, Especially the boys, they've got all caps with an occasional lowercase letter thrown in for good measure. The, the whole skill of handwriting basically is not taught anywhere anymore. Uh, because it is thought to be really superfluous to the needs of modern society, um, we could argue back and forth on that point in many different ways. Uh, which was going back to my point, which is if you can keep the kids writing on paper, give them a handwriting system. A lot of boys will stop doing cursive as soon as you let them. But if you, if you want them to be able to do cursive as adult, you've got to you know the only men who do cursive as an adult as adults went to Catholic school for 12 years. And they were forced to do it all the way through by nuns with sticks. But most of us who went to public school were able to stop doing it in ninth, eighth or ninth grade, and then we quit. I can't do cursive writing. Um, or we relearned it as an adult, third grade teachers who do so under duress. But it's good to force kids, boys to learn cursive. That way they can read it better. They can read their wives' handwriting, you know, later on. Um, but if you can stick with it, it gives you a fluency and an ease and a speed. I mean, there's a lot of sense in being able to write in cursive well. However, on the flip side, you'd have to say, well, what would you rather have? Beautiful, fast, cursive writing or be able to type 90 words a minute? I mean, practically speaking, that would be a lot better in the modern world. So, but it is definitely, uh, kids are sitting there, I hate, I hate this mechanical activity, which is why I'm encouraging the copy work. Copy work was done universally. In fact, another reason copywork is so valuable is because it's patterning good language. Right? So if you're copying something that's well written, you're, you're getting good language into the brain, you're revolving it around several times, you're getting good language out of the brain, you're having to read the thing four or five times to copy it accurately. So copywork is tremendously valuable, but it's been thrown out completely baby with the bathwater in all public schools. You will never find a second grade class doing any significant amount of copy work. In fact, it's almost on the side of you know, bad, evil things like rote learning and drill and memorization. And we could trace that all the way back to John Dewey, but that could take too much time, so we won't go there. Back, uh, did that answer your question? Yes. If I could follow up with you, don't expect to different parts of brain, different Yes. Yes. No, I have not chosen to fight that battle. I pretty much leave it up to people what to do with handwriting. But I would um, you you reminded me of something that's good to think. It's a little bit, for most kids, um, the integration of different skills. Uh, The best analogy I've come up with is driving. Have you ever taught a teenager to drive? I do this every three years because all my kids are three years apart. So every three years, I get a new 15-year-old in the car, right, and it's funny to watch them, because in the beginning, they're like this. OK, there's these mirrors. There's this wheel. There's these pedals. I can do this and not kill us. Right? And they use every erg of their attention to handle these variables. After you've been driving 10 years, what happens? You get in the car. You start driving. You drink lattes. You check the GPS. You talk on the cell phone, unless you're in California, where you're talking on the cell phone, looking around for the cops because it's illegal to talking on the cell phone. You know, you read the magazine at the stoplight. No, I'm not saying you should do all that, but you can do all that and not even notice that you are driving, right? It's, it's become sublimated or automatized, and that would be the goal for handwriting. That's why the copy work is so helpful, is because it will speed up the process of making it more automatic. Because once it becomes automatic, then you don't have to worry about it anymore. Although I find one thing really funny you get whole schools that will train everybody in a very particular handwriting system that's very specific and and some draconian methods of enforcing it. But every single person ends up with different handwriting. I mean, the whole idea of forensics and handwriting analysis is based on the fact that no matter what system you use, we're all going to have different in the end. I find that to be an interesting irony, don't you? Yeah. Okay, one more question, then I want to show you a few more spots here, and we'll wrap it up. Rhonda? Uh-huh. Um, other teachers have argued with me that they know Uh-huh go something: else. Yes, and I would address that kind of separately, but I would say this: um, Most students forget a tremendous amount over the summer. Summer is a great black hole, a very stupid idea. Um, but we do it, right? And so the, uh, making an assumption that students remember anything from a previous year is generally a mistake. It's always better to err on the side of assuming nobody knows anything, reteach. And then if it, it becomes apparent that yes, the skill is retained or not lost, we'll then just move on quickly. The second thing is uh, in our system, and if you're specifically referring to our system, this is unit one and two of nine units. So you would work through our nine units over the course of a school year. And then you get that little break from thinking for a while. And then you'd come back. Well, there's no harm in doing this again, really. It's it's a basic skill. You're reinforcing it. And uh, you can use different content. So you use different stories, different articles. You refresh everybody. And maybe you don't spend a month. Maybe you just spend a week. And then you move on. But I wouldn't skip it entirely. You know, If anybody complains, say, okay, well, just do your best. Prove to me you don't need to do this anymore, and then we'll move on. But usually people complain for the opposite reason. They can't do it and they don't want to, rather than, oh, I already know how to do this well. Children generally like to do what they know how to do. (laughs) All right. Uh, Now, a few other points here. Uh, You've noticed, uh, if you've been looking on the second page here, that uh, there is a step with some uh, dress-up suggestions here. Now, this is what we would call the stylistic techniques or very specific word usages, Uh, or very specific grammatical constructions that we would teach, give suggestions and examples, and then require them to do in their composition. Uh, So it's going to be kind of the, uh, not the Ten Good Suggestions way of teaching writing, but the Ten Commandments way, which is you have to do this, 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 and this, and you may not do that and that. And that's how you're going to develop the skills to do this, rather than, Here's some things you could do if you wanted to make your writing better. That's generally not effective for a good chunk of of the population. So we we use the checklist system. I'm sure you all have various rubrics that you use for your writing assignments. So this isn't a new idea. It may expand it in a direction you haven't thought of before. Uh, We call them dress-ups, and that's our first category, uh, because the dress-up techniques uh, make sense to a kid. Uh, you can vary your style by what you choose to wear. Right? You can use play clothes if you're going to go play, uh, jeans and T-shirts style. You can dress up in a clown suit if you're going to a costume party. You can wear a suit and tie or a nice uh, dress with nice shoes if you want to look professional. Right? So you've got options in clothing. You also have options in word use. That's where this whole idea of dress up came from. And kids can immediately relate to it. So I say, just like if I want to look more professional, I might put on a tie. There are certain things I would do in my writing on purpose to make it sound a little dressed up. Maybe uh, the first one I usually teach is put in an L-Y. So you'll notice this list of the first four we have. I usually go with the L-Y word first because kids can relate to it so easily. So let's say we were... We had uh, written this out, we have the outline, we've talked it through, everybody's understanding it. Um, The kids have basic ability to write sentences, and so now we're going to add in the first dress up, which would be an LY, uh, you could say LY word or LY adverb, depending, you know, how much grammar vernacular they're familiar with, doesn't really matter. There are some LY words which are not adverbs, like butterfly um, and ugly. There's also some adverbs which are not L-Y words, like well and quite. But for the most part, we're looking at these L-Y adverbs that are going to enhance the description, the way kids see the story. You can kind of help them brainstorm a list. If you say, here, put in an L-Y word and you limit them to what they can think of, that can be kind of limiting for some. Instead, it's nice to build some word lists. So um, the fox somethingly fell into a well. What, What word might fit in there? He fell... Suddenly, he fell quickly, he fell clumsily. All right, Uh, the goat passed by and somethingly asked, what are you doing down there? Loudly. Loudly, all right. Curiously. How else? Accusingly, ooh, I like that. All right, uh, the fox somethingly said, oh, there's going to be a drought. I came down here to have the water. Slyly. By the way, this is the only word in English that has L-Y-L-Y right next to each other that I'm aware of, and you can always win a hangman game with this word. Nobody can ever guess it. <laughs> no vowels. <laughs> All right, uh, slyly, what else? Um, he said the, the fox somethingly said there's going to be a drought. Shrewdly. Sagan, convincingly. Ooh, very nice. All right. Uh, the goat, so the goat thought this was a good idea and somethingly jumped down. Unwisely. Or. Immediately. Unluckily. (laughs) Unthinkingly. All right. The kids, of course, can get even better than that, you know, idiotically, moronically. They know all those. Um, The uh, fox uh, sprang onto the back and somethingly got out of the well. Easily. Or finally, and you could go on with this. I mean, as much time as you want. You could get, you know, I find a couple dozen is a nice place to be. And uh, what you can do, of course, is you can put them on a whiteboard and have the kids copy them into lists that they can then keep in a notebook. Or if you have young children or if you have a wall, in the room that you can use. I know some of you have to probably camp out in churches and you don't get to own the walls. But if you can own the walls, you can take your list and then put it on a poster. Then the next story, do it again right, and add a few more words to the list. And the next story, add some more words to the list and gradually add up a list of words uh, from each story. And then the kids have a repertoire. And it's fascinating to watch children work with lists of words. And you can do this with uh, verbs. Strong verbs, substitute in for said, substitute for went or go. Many of you have probably done that to a degree, said these are the tired words, we're not going to use them, here's the substitute. Teach the kids how to use it, thesaurus. Yeah, I see some of you discovered in your bag, if you want to take a look at it right now, we uh, gifted you with one of these little portable walls, uh, things that we made. I'm not a big fan of just taking this and throwing it at a kid and say, you know, here, use it, it's a little too much, too fast it would be better to kind of build up some of these lists organically with the children so they have a participation. And then, once you uh, have got a lot, then say, okay, here's kind of a summary of a lot of what we've talked about there. Uh, but you can see, we, in addition to the dress-up techniques, we also have sentence openers, decorations, triple patterns, and all that. Um, so you've got uh, that you can take a look at. And, um, and what's fascinating is when you, when you watch children write, They're going to say, oh, I need to have an L-Y word somewhere in the sentence. They scan the list, and this word, which they would not have been able to think of on their own, kind of hops off the list into their eyes, through their brain, out their fingers, and onto their paper, and they write a word they would not have been able to write on their own, thereby sounding smarter than they actually are, which I'm constantly trying to do, although it's better than that. Rather than sounding smarter than you actually are, what happens when words hop off lists through your brain and into your paper several times? You you start to acquire them. They become part of you. You become linguistically smarter than you previously were. So, word lists are both temporary and permanent brain expanders that way. And then uh, the other techniques are pretty straightforward. Um, The who which clause is nice because a lot of children uh, will overly rely on and, right? And, 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 and. If you say somewhere in there you have to do a who or a which, they'll have to connect two ideas uh, using. The clause. Uh, so um, the fox uh, who said there's going to be a drought. Uh, you should come down here and get some water uh, had a very clever plan to uh, exploit the goat's lack of intelligence or something. So you, you, you'd also find that the kids are gonna have to add in some content. Same thing with the because clause. You you say you hey, have to put the word because somewhere in here well, then you've got to think of something to go with because. So it forces a type of causal thinking. Uh, and then the strong verb, as I recommend, use kind of the banned words list, and you say you can't use uh, you know, these various words, go when, think, thought, said, um, like, uh, eat, some of the simple verbs. And, uh, and also it's very handy to help the kids uh, get the hang of using thesaurus. Uh, we have a very nice little book we sell. Uh, you can see it in our catalog. You can see it downstairs. It's called A Word Right Now. It's a, a young child, very friendly, character-based thesaurus. Uh, and then, of course, those little electronic thesauruses are really good for especially boys who like electronic things with buttons. So, uh, Anyway, we probably better uh, wrap it up so we can get down to lunch. Uh, any last question? Yes? Uh huh. You, you just told them how to spell it. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to train a child to never use any interesting words, this is how you do it. When they say, um, how do you spell tyrannical? you tell them, Well, look it up. Now there's only one possible way you would ever find tyrannical in the dictionary, and that's if you already knew how to spell it. <laughs> so there's it's an impossible frustration. And so either you spell it for him, or if you're too busy, say, give it your best guess, we'll fix it together later. But if you don't give them that freedom, they'll just stop using words like tyrannical and go back to bad. So instead of being a tyrannical king, he was just a bad king. So that level of freedom that I try to engender, uh, you know give it your best shot, I'll help you if I can, we'll fix it up later. The final product, everything will be spelled properly. But right now, let's not worry so much. Yeah. One last question. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Good thing. But I would be sure that they're rather organized because you don't want to you you want to have words, you want to have everything in a classroom there for a reason. That's why I don't like decorated classrooms, unless there's a a specific reason and value to it. So yes, here's your L Y words. And we'll put them in alphabetical order, and then when you're scanning for words, you can find them and use them. Over here we'll put the strong verbs. Over there we'll put the quality adjectives. Over there, we'll put the 100 most commonly misspelled words, you know, so, that the, so that the walls become, if you will, a living reference environment for the kids. And, and in fact, that's the main thing we do. This portable walls idea came out really because I was teaching in the Sacramento School District, and the fire marshal, who's an idiot and should be sentenced to teaching fourth grade with no help for a year, um, made a regulation that the schools could cover no more than 20% of their walls with paper. Can you imagine having to teach in a classroom and only cover 20% of your walls with paper? Well, it's a complete violation of everything we would stand for, which is get the resources out. I mean, we're the blended soundsite people. We're trying to you know, show and, and multi-sensory, build a, a word-rich environment. Uh, so uh, the teachers really had to run some. So I came up with this idea of creating a little you know, portable walls. So you can't put it on the wall, but you can have it standing in front of you at your desk. Uh, But yes, word walls, but not random, having some organization. They work very well for spelling, too. So if you put all your E-A words, say E, over there, and all your E-A words, say E, over here, then when you get a new word, you know where to put it in your mind, too. And that's a whole other lecture on spelling, which we will not go to right now. All right. um, I guess I should say thank you very much, and we'll see you down at lunch, I guess. Thank you.